Well, good morning, everyone. Uh, so I've been here a couple times since getting back from Africa, but um, as far as teaching a lesson on Sunday, I think it's been five weeks. Uh, I was sick the week before going to Africa, then I think three Sundays I was in Africa, then Jim this past Sunday. So it's been it's been a long time um, since I've given a lesson on a Sunday. Um, it's good to be back here, and it's very encouraging um, to be refreshed and uh, rejuvenated uh, from this past week. And before I talk about um, some specific things about Africa, I do want to give some introductory comments from Acts 13 and 14. Uh, I want to say two things by way of introduction, one from Acts 13 and one from Acts 14. So if you're not aware, in the book of Acts, uh, Acts 13 starts what's known as Paul's missionary journeys. Um, not to sound like a stickler, but I tend to be a big proponent for using biblical terms to describe biblical things. Uh, I tend to think about them just Paul's preaching trips. Uh, in chapter 13, he starts in Antioch. And the church sends him out, and he basically comes back to Antioch twice. So, you know, what's well known as his missionary journeys, there's three. There's Acts 13 and 14. That's really his first preaching trip. He goes from Antioch, he comes back. And then uh, starting at the end of Acts 15, really 16 through 19, is Paul's second trip, which is much larger. And uh, it doesn't go into as much detail uh, about his return to Antioch, but it mentions his return to Antioch. And then from Antioch, he goes out again. And then uh, instead of going back to Antioch, he actually um, goes to Jerusalem and then goes into prison and then goes to Rome. So there's really three trips Paul takes, recycling from Antioch. And Acts 13 is the beginning of his first one. I'll go ahead and read verses 1 through 3 again. Now there were at Antioch, in the church that was there, prophets and teachers, Barnabas and Simeon, who is called Niger, and Lucius of Cyrene, and Manaean, who had been brought up with Herod the Tetrarch, and Saul. Note, that's five active evangelists, preachers, teachers, in a local church. That's pretty incredible. Uh, in verse 2, while they were ministering to the Lord and fasting, the Holy Spirit said, Set apart for me Barnabas and Saul for the work to which I have called them. Then when they had fasted and prayed and laid their hands on them, they sent them away. Uh, so just kind of pay attention in verse 3, they sent them away. So it's like the church in Antioch, I think, um, encouraged Paul and Barnabas. I think they would have financially helped Paul and Barnabas for what they would have needed for their trip. Uh, and it's almost as if they were an extension of Antioch going out where they went. Um, yeah, this is going to be kind of an emotional lesson I'm predicting, but even I just are inexpressibly thankful um, for the kind of support you've given us to go to Africa for so long. Um, it was a long time to be away. Just the consideration everybody has given to us, um, how you sent us out, being so supportive even when we've come back and been very tired uh, and weary um, just extra amounts of consideration given to us on the way back. Uh, cannot tell you just how encouraging it is, uh, just the love that you've given us. So we consider it that you sent us out, that it wasn't just Eve and I <laughs> taking a trip on our own, but that we are an extension of the church here. So chapter 14 uh, I think there's a biblical precedent for giving a report of a trip like this. So as the trip is concluding, um, they come back to Antioch. So in verse 26, from there they sailed to Antioch, from where they had been committed to the grace of God for the work that they had fulfilled. So meaning they, they completed what they set out to do, and the completion of that was returning to the church at Antioch. And when they had arrived, what did they do? They gathered the church together and they began to report all things that God had done with them and how he had opened a door of faith to the Gentiles. And they spent not a little time with the disciples. So when they got back to Antioch, uh, they gathered the church together and they gave a report about the work that God had done. And I, I want you to notice that in verse 27. 
It's the work that God had done with them, right? So the report of Sierra Leone isn't the work that Dan or Sean, who's a fellow worker there with Dan, or Sonia, his wife, or Sean's wife, Abby. It's not the work that they're doing. It's really the work that God is doing. And it's how they are working with God. And when we went there, it's not the work that Bryant or Eva did. It's the work that God did and us just trying to do our best to work with God. So that was our goal in going to Africa. The goal of the trip was just to be as useful as we could be, um, to participate in whatever we can participate in, and to especially um, invest as much encouragement as we can in Dan and Sonia and their kids. Just whatever they need, whatever we can do, um, is what we wanted to do, to do for them. And thank God it was a very, very, very fruitful trip. Um, so on the board here is Dan and his wife, Sonia. And uh, Dan has lived in Africa now in Bo, Sierra Leone, for three years. He moved there with a good friend of John's. Uh, so when John was younger, he was very close to someone named Sean. And so Sean, uh, Sean and his wife live in the same area. And Dan and Sean are focusing their efforts on a particular church in the region or the city of uh, Bo, which I'll show you more of in just a bit. Uh, Dan is holding his daughter, Appa. Um, she got malaria for the first time while we were there. And then um, Eden is there on the bottom, the blonde girl. And then Sonia is pregnant and going to be giving birth to their third child um, in December. So uh, when we went to Africa, um, so this kind of roughly is Google Maps. Um, starting from Georgia, we went to Chicago then went to Belgium, uh, Brussels in Belgium, and then went to Sierra Leone. Uh, going there, I think it was about 30 hours of traveling. I think coming back, it was about 40 hours of traveling. Um, the way back was much larger, much longer. And you'll notice it, it's a big distance. So from southeastern America to northwestern Africa. And Sierra Leone is specifically in the upper northwestern corner of Africa. So you'll notice the Sahara Desert encompasses the northern area of Africa. So just south of that on the western shoreline is Sierra Leone. And I've tried to highlight it here. So it's a small, it's a small country. Um, we would have landed kind of on the coast there in a little place called, well, the biggest city, Freetown, on the coast. And just to kind of comparatively help you maybe grasp the size of the country. So there's a website where you can kind of compare the size of countries compared to other places. So Georgia is quite literally uh, twice as big as Sierra Leone. Um, it takes much longer to travel anywhere in Sierra Leone because of the condition of the roads and what you're able to actually drive. Um, everything takes, takes much, much longer, but it's a much smaller country uh, than even the state of Georgia is. And uh, just some facts about Sierra Leone here. So it's the 12th poorest country in the world. Uh, and when you're there, um, it's not like people are aware of how poor they are. They're, they're mainly just living off of what they have. And that is very little. Um, there's not much electricity when you're in a city. There's some government-provided electricity, uh, some. Uh, but it's just life. I don't know. Um you know, kind of anticipating the trip, kind of think about, okay, so Africa is going to be kind of rough in it, you know, and <laughs> culture is going to be a lot different. Uh, things are going to be way more difficult. Uh, but something that struck me is when, when we got there, now, mind you, Dan and his wife have been there for three years, and they have really oriented themselves to life there, right? They've become accustomed to it. They've gotten used to their area and how to live there. So to be fair, we are entering into... Dan and Sonia having a lot of experience in Africa and kind of adjusting, right? So it's not like we went there with no knowledge of how to do anything or how to adjust. That's, that's not the case. But what struck me is if I'm not going there <laughs> expecting it to be American culture with American conveniences, the Bible equips me to, I think, live anywhere. So yes, the culture is different. Yes, things do take longer. Everything is harder. Uh, nothing is as convenient. Um, I don't know. If you go there just with biblical principles in mind, life is life, people are people, and you get there and you're sweating all day and you're kind of, I don't know, a little more grimy. But because that's where you are, it's, I don't know, it's, it's not as big of a deal as it may seem to be thinking about it from outside of the country. When you get there, life is life and people are people and you just kind of adjust to it. 
Um, it has a population of about 8.5 million, which is a lot, but it's not a lot. Um, I think Georgia actually has a much higher population, which, to be fair, it's a much bigger place, twice as big. But it's still, it's, it's a lot of people. Uh, and illiteracy is very common in Sierra Leone. And I want to be careful to, to note here, that doesn't mean that people are not intelligent. Uh, it just means learning to read is not a very common thing. People are obviously people, so people are very intelligent. It's just learning to read is not a common thing. So the main language in Sierra Leone is Creole, and this is not like Louisiana Creole. <laughs> this is Creole, which is an African language. Um, it's kind of a mix between English and kind of a deep tribal African kind of language mixed together into one. So if you speak English, you can kind of understand what people are saying a little bit. And they probably, they do do a better job of understanding you uh, because people are somewhat familiar with English and are exposed to English. Um, but Creole is not really a written language. When I taught my first sermon there, I asked Dan if there was a Creole Bible I could look at. And he had one. But he said it's useless because <laughs> he says, you know, nobody in Creole reads Creole. It's not a written language. So somebody invested this enormous undertaking to translate the Bible into Creole, but nobody reads it. So kind of a, I don't want to say it's a waste of time, but literally no one uses it because Creole is not a, a written language. So it's only verbal. Um, now there are local languages in every, every region. What this means is most people speak three or four languages. So usually their local language is their best language. Creole is the universal Sierra Leonean language. So everybody, well, most people speak Creole. Some people speak only their local language. So most people speak Creole as well as their local language. And then a lot of people, I would say not necessarily the majority, a lot of people speak a bit of English, if not a lot of English. Uh, and then if people can read, they learn to read English. Uh, now, since Creole is not a written language, all of the signs everywhere are in English. This is convenient for an English-speaking outsider. Um, but learning to read English <laughs> sounds helpful. But because English is very different from Creole and also has a lot of words that are not in Creole, um, even if someone learns to read English, that doesn't mean they can understand it well at all. It just means they can maybe print out some words Sentence structure is different in English. There are so many words in English that are not in Creole. And also with reading the Bible, there's also a lot of words in the Bible that are just not normal words in the first place, right? So just because somebody has learned to read some English does not mean they understand what they're reading even when they read English. So it's just kind of a very challenging situation as far as um, teaching and learning there, uh, as far as biblically teaching and learning. There's no such thing as atheism in Sierra Leone. Literally, no one is an atheist. Um, and also because of that, there's no homosexuality or transgenderism. That's not even on the radar of the culture. Um, it's not existent there. Um, that doesn't mean the culture doesn't have serious problems. It does. Um, but everyone in Sierra Leone is religious. Uh, and a part of that may contribute also to the fact that there's not really crime. There is crime. There's jails. But you feel safe literally everywhere you go. Everybody is very kind. Um, you never feel like people are going to like rob you because you're obviously a foreigner, that people are going to, I don't know, threaten you. You never feel intimidated anywhere you are, no matter where you are. Everybody is generally very kind and courteous. Uh, but the majority of people are Muslim. Now, mind you, they can't read. So nobody reads the Quran. And we're not talking about dedicated, like, you know, reading the Quran kind of Muslims. We're talking about... My culture is Muslim, therefore I guess I happen to now be a Muslim. And the minority are Christian. So everybody believes in God. Um, and that's just the culture. The culture is God-believing. It's not very difficult to convert someone from Muslim to Christian because, again, they're not converted because they just adherently believe the writings of the Quran. And there's even, like, prayers that'll be read in um, the Islamic language over the loudspeaker in some of these cities, but nobody understands what they're saying because they're speaking a language nobody speaks, so it's just kind of a ritual. Um, so really, you just talk to people about who Jesus really was and, you know, tell them what the Bible says about Jesus. And really, I mean, if their hearts are open, uh, that's very persuasive because, again, people aren't studying themselves to be Muslim. They just culturally are Muslim. Uh, all right. 
So Freetown is on the very left, is where the airport is. It's about a four-hour drive to get from Freetown to Bo, where Dan and his family live. And Bo is the third largest city in, in Sierra Leone. And I want to kind of give you an idea of what Bo looks like here. So this isn't just out in the wilderness, okay? Like you get into Bo and on the drive there, so from Freetown, which is a gigantic city, to Bo is nonstop like, you know, bush village, bush village, left and right. You know, you're only seeing villages that are kind of out in the bush, not really electricity. Then all of a sudden you get in Bo and this is what you find. Um, power lines, buildings, massively populated, uh, some cars. There's no traffic lights or traffic signals, by the way. So it's not chaos either, but it's kind of chaos. Uh, everybody's honking all the time. Uh, it's, it's very different in terms of driving, but mostly motorcycles, but you can see there's, there's shops everywhere. There's people everywhere. It's, it's a densely populated area. Um, the main transportation is motorcycle driving and motorcycle taxis. And these are 125 cc vehicles. This isn't like, you know, uh, American kind of motorcycles like Harley Davidson or, uh, power motorcycles, uh, powerful sport bikes. Um, they're just, you know, generally very slow going motorcycles. And so even I spent a lot of time riding these motorcycles and, you know, three or four people sometimes will be sitting on these motorcycles. So Dan took this picture one time when he was riding next to us. Uh, it's a really good time. It's a lot of fun riding on these motorcycles. So, okay. Now, just for the rest of the time, kind of want to talk about the work that we did there. So Dan lives in a gated compound. So it's a house and a guest house in a gated compound. And you're not going to be able to see this, but the gates on every house that is, you know, enclosed in a wall, there's barbed wire on the top of the gates with broken glass under the barbed wire. So they're pretty serious about their security. Not Dan and Sonia necessarily, but just whoever's building these walls. That's, that's how every wall is. Um, so Dan, one of the things that he asked for ahead of time, Dan believed that one of the best ways that Eve and I could invest in the work long-term most effectively um, for me was if I had one-on-one -on -one studies with Dan every day. Uh, Dan felt like that would equip him as a teacher and that that would help uh, equip him also to teach the church as he learns the Bible better himself. So he asked if we could study the Psalms. I love the Psalms. I've probably studied the Psalms more than any book of the Bible um, easily. So that was a very fruitful study. And we, every day in the back, uh, would start our mornings uh, studying Psalms together. And it was just extremely fruitful. And it seemed like that equipped Dan to have a zeal to try to teach that um, to the Christians there. I think um, the hard thing is, so because there's so much illiteracy, um, teaching poetic stuff in the Bible is more challenging. Uh, but I think in our studies, we were able to see how kind of visual a lot of these psalms are and understanding how to convey the imagery in a way that anybody could understand. And then this is where the church meets. So that's the front door to their house. They have a kind of like a front porch that's uh, wide open to the outdoors. So the church meets in their front porch, basically. And then this is a picture from behind. So there's a lot of other Christians to the side and behind where I took the picture. Um, but this is a brother there named James. And before I talk more about James, so because of Sonia and Dan and Abby and Sean investing so much in this church, uh, this congregation is leagues more mature in where they are both spiritually and in their biblical knowledge than any other church we visited by far, no comparison. And I think it just shows the fruitfulness of people who know the Bible and uh, are trying to be very mature with their use of the Bible and to teach others. So you are not going to find any other church that I'm aware of in all of Sierra Leone where someone locally is teaching the book of Obadiah. <laughs> um, I don't mean this in an insulting way, but I don't believe many other Christians in Sierra Leone outside of here would even know that Obadiah is a book in the Bible. Um, but I just want to challenge you guys. James here, who's a local has learned to read by reading the Bible, and he's just ready to teach on Obadiah. You know, just from his own personal study, English is not his first language, but he just taught through the book of Obadiah really on a short notice. He's just familiar with it. And the letters on the left side, so A is Abraham, I is Isaac, and then uh, J, Jacob, and Esau. He's just kind of presenting, you know, Obadiah is writing to the people of Edom, 
They came from Esau, so he's just kind of giving an overview, talked about the circumstances of Obadiah, uh, just a lot of background knowledge and just a very rich study going through the text. And everybody is very engaged. Uh, everybody is very interested in this, and James just really did a very good job uh, being very encouraging the way that he was conveying the text, and everybody participated in the study uh, very much. The front right is Frank sitting in the kind of wooden chair. Uh, Frank has polio, I believe, so he has to walk with crutches. Uh, he walks all the way to Dan's compound with his crutches. Um, and it's just no big deal. Again, it's like, it's life, you know? It's like, I look at that and think like, wow, how impressive. But uh, I think that's very normal in the culture there. Uh, but it's very, very encouraging. Um, and then Francis is another young brother there. Francis reads extremely well. Uh, Francis reads English um, very fluidly, even hard words. Uh, Francis did a lesson on Philemon. And again, I would think in my own mind, Philemon is kind of one of these more obscure books of the Bible. Uh, but Francis, like James, is ready to teach a book like Philemon. Um, not because either of these guys feel like they are gifted speakers. They just understand there is a need to teach, and therefore they teach. And again, it's not because they feel like they are great teachers. They just see the ability to read and be a man as inherently having a sense of responsibility. Very encouraging class. And Francis even made the connection that uh, what Paul was urging Philemon to do with Ones Onesimus uh, is like what Jesus has done for us to God, just in terms of freedom from slavery and forgiveness. Uh, it was, again, a very enriching Bible class, really, really encouraging. Um, so James, who taught Obadiah, um, wanted to study with me one-on-one. -on -one. And James has been studying through all of the prophets in his own time. And so James wanted to study the book of Jeremiah. <laughs> and so we spent, uh, I think, four or five days studying Jeremiah. And he got it. Um, and I think because there's just less distraction in uh, the culture, he was able to remember everything that we talked about every time we got together. So we did an overview of Jeremiah and the history behind it. And then we just went through some, what I believe are key moments through the book. We didn't study through, you know, chapter by chapter, just key moments. Um, and he was uh, comprehending and following along very, very well. It was a very, very good study. And then Dan and I would go to a village in Bo called Coco Filet. So you've got the city, and then um, I would kind of think about these villages like suburbs. Um, it's not a fair one-to-one -one comparison, so just understand that's like a loose comparison. I'm just trying to compare it to something familiar. But basically, you have the city city, and then all around the city are villages like this that are more in the bush. And when I say bush... I mean, not really electricity, just kind of dirt and bushes with houses that, um, you know, made from like clay and brick uh, with tin roofs. So we would go and study with Thomas, who is not a Christian, but had recently shown a great interest in learning about Jesus and Augustine, who is a Christian. Uh, Augustine is a young guy, about 18, who has a good ability to read, really good ability to read. And Dan feels like Augustine has a lot of zeal to where uh, Dan has been most encouraged, I think, uh, by Augustine of many of the people he's worked with. So Augustine was accompanying Dan basically to study with Thomas. And then through these studies, uh, Thomas was baptized. Um, so really Dan was working with Thomas, understanding repentance, the kingdom of God, and what it really means to be committed to Jesus as a disciple, right? So what Dan has reflected on is you can baptize people in Africa quite easily, but that's not the goal. Um, the goal is teaching people about the kingdom and through their understanding the kingdom, you know, them having more of a genuine understanding, okay, here's what repentance is. This is what it means to be committed to Jesus. And if they're willing to accept that and really understand that, then they're ready to be baptized, right? So it's not just, hey, you're a sinner. You need to be baptized. Let's get you in the water um, Dan could certainly do that very easily. That's not the kind of work uh, that he's doing there. That's not the work that Sean is doing there either. Uh, so just another picture of Thomas uh, being baptized. So we also took a five-day trip to Kono. This is northeast of Bo. Um, there's a shorter way of getting there. So you notice we had to go all the way west, almost to Freetown, and then divert north and then east. This is the long way. 
Uh, Dan has driven motorcycles to Kono before, and it only takes two to three hours, and that's where you go east, and you pretty much go straight there. But those are not paved roads. <laughs> so we took uh, his truck, which he had recently purchased, and because we were driving a truck, we had to drive paved roads. Paved roads. This meant taking the long way, uh, six-hour drive from Bo to get there. Kono is another big city. Um, it's one of the biggest diamond exporters in the entire world. So the city kind of in its middle has this giant man, man-made mountain where it's a hole going straight down to get the diamonds. So it's not like a mine going into a mountain. It's literally straight down into the earth. And then all around this circle, there's just this mountain kind of around it with all the dirt that they've dug up to get the diamonds. Uh, Kono is still extremely poor. So you'd think, well, they're exporting diamonds. This must be like a really wealthy community. No. <laughs> this is kind of like what you would expect where the person who's doing the hardest work in a third world country gets pretty much none of the profit. And then the middleman and everyone after him gets all the profit. So this is still an extremely poor community. Kono is not affluent at all, um, even though they're one of the biggest diamond exporters in the world. It's also an area that just has more Christians than Bo. It's uh, kind of incomparable, actually. There's There's... Lots of churches throughout Kono, a lot of new churches and a lot of new Christians. And on our first day there, we met with three guys that Dan and I really tried to invest in who are the main teachers who go around traveling to the different churches and also starting new churches. So the first one is Augustine. And I want to tell you a little bit about Augustine. We were able to have a very fruitful, I think, providential conversation with Augustine. He's so encouraging, but his marriage is not in a good situation. Um, so I'll give you his background. He started as a Muslim and he heard some American preachers that I actually know personally who traveled there and they were teaching on the radio. He heard them teaching on the radio and um, in his past, he had been divorced and remarried. When he became a Christian, he uh, studied with those Christians and d- divorce and remarriage was brought up and he realized he did not have the scriptural right to be married to his current wife because his divorce before was not for adultery. So he ended up breaking away from that marriage and reconciling with his first wife, actually. Uh, Very difficult. Well, this happened years and years ago, and his marriage with his first wife has never become easy. So uh, before Augustine had ever met her, she had had a child with another man and continues to talk to this other man very regularly. This puts a great deal of tension in their marriage. So we sat down with Augustine, and Dan was very frank, wanting to ask questions about the condition of his marriage, what's going on. And the exhortations that Dan gave Augustine was, there's no, there's no easy path. <laughs> you have a hard path, and that's, that's the reality. And he told Augustine, you know, scripturally, he needs to love his wife, no matter how his wife responds. He needs to sexually give himself to his wife, no matter what his wife may do, no matter how she may respond to him. Because Augustine opened up that his marriage situation is very discouraging, emotionally, spiritually, physically, in every way. And so Dan tried to encourage him, 1 Corinthians 7, you know, don't withhold yourself from your wife sexually just because your marriage has tension. And he said, you've got to love your wife when she's not loving you. You have to fulfill your responsibility to your wife. And Dan was being compassionate, by the way, in exhorting all these things, but me listening was like, this is, this is hard counsel. And I've had many a men in hard marriage situations, uh, respond very poorly. And Augustine, after the conversation, and Dan said a lot of other hard but necessary things, Augustine thanked God and thanked Dan. And he said, thank you for your courage to tell me these needed and difficult things. This is what I needed to hear. And so Augustine determined to do the right thing. And the church I preached at on that Sunday, his wife was there in attendance and seemed very engaged. So (laughs) pray for Augustine. That hard situation. Um, He is really trying hard to do the right thing there. And then Sandy, who's also very encouraging, very easy to laugh with. Um, Sandy has a very good marriage, which is rare. Um, Most men are adulterers in Sierra Leone. Um, It may sound like a bad generalization, but it's reality. Um, There's kind of a saying, kind of like the Cretans with Paul and Titus 1, kind of a saying that there's no such thing as a faithful man in Sierra Leone. It's really sad. But Sandy has a great marriage. Him and his wife have uh, four kids. His wife is very dedicated to the Lord. 
and their marriage is just a great example, and Sandy is a very, very zealous teacher. Um, Sandy and I had some one-on-one studies on the church. So a hard thing is there's a Bible college in the area that has a strong influence in the area, and that Bible college presents a very denominational way of thinking about the church um, in a lot of ways that are subtle, right? So kind of like we've got to convert people to the Church of Christ, you know, or that's not a teaching consistent with Church of Christ doctrine. And by the way, if you don't see a red flag with that language, um, we should study and talk because <laughs> uh, that's, that's not right, and that presents reality of the church in a false way. So we studied about that. Um, and hopefully Sandy can um, clarify that with others as well, because that is extremely important. Um, a lot of that relates to the Church of Christ is the people who belong to Jesus. It's not just another denomination. And it really ends up, that way of thinking de-emphasizes Jesus heavily in a really serious way. So the studies went really well, though. And then there's Samuel. So Samuel lives uh, in a village pretty far away from Kono. It's still technically Kono. But really, Kaidu is the city in Kono. But Samuel lives in a farther out, out village. And Samuel, every Sunday, walks to three different churches to teach in three different churches every Sunday. Um, he's very poor. His uh, village is very poor. Um, we spent a day teaching. And at the end of our teaching, he said, I'm hungry. And he didn't mean like an American, I'm hungry. He meant, I haven't eaten in two days. I'm hungry. Uh, later on, he would say, I'm thirsty. And what he, he didn't mean like, hey, you know, can we get a soda? He meant, I haven't drunk anything in a long, long time. I've been talking and walking a lot. Can we please get something to drink? Um, Samuel is just such an encouraging person. So he sacrifices a lot. He gets sick a lot because of how much he exerts to travel and teach. Um, he's very, very encouraging. Um, all of these guys struggle to read, right? Um, so a lot of it is just trying to encourage them, read your Bibles. You know, it's hard but read it, be patient with it, discipline yourself. Um, these guys are very encouraging, but kind of the culture in Kono is you've got a lot of people who know enough to be saved, right? And they know a lot of truthful points, but they don't really know how to develop people into maturity. They don't know much about the Bible. So you've got a lot of people who know enough to be saved and not much more than that. And that's like all the Christians, and nearly all the teachers as well. The teachers might know a little bit more, uh, but it's challenging. It's really challenging. So what Dan and I were determined to do is not just teach point lessons, topical lessons, but walk through accounts in Jesus's ministry with people and try to teach those things very carefully and very scripturally in a way that everybody could understand and try to equip everyone to become more familiar with Jesus and to equip people and really exhort people who could read to read and take that responsibility seriously. So if somebody can read, there's not pressure to read more because nobody can read and nobody really understands what they're missing out on, right? So there's not a lot of like, hey, wow, I need to read more. Um, Now, Paul Johnson has learned to read a lot in his time with us, but I think there's a lot of pressure to read because we can all read and we're teaching things fairly regularly that are unfamiliar and I think equip someone to realize like, hey, there's a lot more that I don't know that I need to be trying to understand that's not culture in Kono. So you kind of have to enforce like, hey, there's a lot in the Bible that's really important. So if you can read, you have a responsibility to dig in. Again, even if it's hard, it's a needed, it's a needed thing. So you've got a lot of people who are hungry for the word though. They, they do want to learn. And they're really just victims to whatever they can get. If a teacher is not reading, then they have all this zeal to want to learn the word of God that's not being fed. So we went to Wardu, and this is where I spent most of my time teaching in Wardu. Um, this is more within Kaidu, uh, really close to the diamond mines in the city. These are all new Christians. So Augustine, this is his home village where he grew up and had recently taught about 20 people the gospel here. And this is a group that was very, very, very zealous to learn. Uh, kind of a funny story with this too. So I've been telling Dan that the idea of teaching people I've never met before in a language I've never spoken before was fairly intimidating. So I told Dan I want to spend a lot of time kind of listening and observing, uh, kind of in the backseat. And I think something got lost in translation when I was trying to emphasize that because like literally the next morning after like really trying to be clear about that with Dan, 
We came here the next morning, and as everybody sits down, Dan says, okay, everybody, Bryant has something he wants to share with us. So then he sat and looked at me, and I was like, well, okay. So I just started from Luke 1, and we just started talking about Jesus, and then we went through Luke 3, 4, and 5, and 6 in the preceding days. We were able to come back again and again here. Um, so there was a Sunday where Dan and I split up. Um, Dan went one direction to some Christians on a Sunday, and I went in another direction. And so Wardu was the church that I um, met with on Sunday. So I ended up getting a close relationship with the brethren here. Um, so I was teaching Luke, and Augustine is on the far side translating. And Augustine did such a good job translating my English into Creole. Uh, Augustine's just, he's very smart, very educated. Um, so he could understand what I was meaning in English really, really well. He did a great job translating into Creole. And again, everybody here wanted to learn. So we went back on one day, and we kind of left it up to them how much time they're willing to spend. And there was one day where they let us literally exhaust them with teaching. Uh, we would say, okay, do you want to stop now? And they'd be like, no, 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 you're, you're, we're like a cup. You're filling up with water. We want you to keep going. And then eventually everybody was, you could tell, like, it's hot in here. And it was the morning, so everybody's just getting exhausted with the heat and all the sitting and they let us go until they were totally exhausted. They were just, they were so hungry for teaching and they were paying such a good attention. It was very amazing. The guy in the right is named, uh, Daniel. And then there was another brother named James. So James was extremely eager and we've exchanged numbers and were able to keep in contact a little bit. And then, uh, Daniel was not a Christian, but was attending all of these studies. And so, uh, Sandy, uh, baptized Daniel in Wardu. And then uh, Patrick was visiting from uh, Kenema. I was laughing because John was not smiling. And I told him, like, you know, when we take pictures in America, we smile. And so he told me to delete the other pictures where, I, where he didn't smile. So that, I thought that was pretty funny. So there's Patrick who was visiting from Kenema far away. Patrick, I think, is very involved in teaching. John is a new Christian, but he's very zealous, very involved. And I think he wants to be involved in teaching. Um, so it was very encouraging to get to meet him as well. And then many villages were just far, far outside of the city. I mean, really far. There's times where we're driving about 40 minutes to an hour on motorcycle on fairly uh, deteriorated roads to get where we need to go. Very beautiful. I mean, it's just gorgeous driving conditions. But, you know, Dan wiped out once on one of the roads. I had to get off frequently so that Dan could um, drive across some of the roads. And this is a church we went to uh, one day where Samuel was with us translating into Kono. So Dan spoke Creo, but not everybody spoke Creo. So Samuel translated into Kono, the local language. Uh, the women especially basically only spoke Kono. And Dan's lesson was on Mark 5, the Legion Demonaic. It was such a good lesson. Everybody really understood and was so interested to learn about these things. You know, these are things they've never heard before. You know, so Mark 5, they, they have no idea. They've never heard that before. So it's all just very exciting, just the fresh perspective on hearing these things. And then this was another village where um, Dan wanted me to teach. So I taught on Luke chapter 7, uh, the woman who cries on Jesus' feet and wipes the tears with her hair. Uh, so I did my best to try to teach that simply with, again, Samuel translating that from English into Kono. And he did a wonderful job doing that. And everybody here, again, was very, very interested in that. And I think there were some Muslims um, who came here. And we were especially thinking that for Muslims to hear about who Jesus was and what he did would be particularly effective in helping them understand uh, how much more important Jesus is than the Muslim religion portrays him to be. And then this is Dongbaidu. I didn't get a picture of the assembly at Dongbaidu, but Dongbaidu was an especially treacherous drive where there's like secret roads that are surrounded by tall grass, and we were following someone who knew how to get there. Uh, so there's Christians back here in this 40-minute drive on all of these secret roads, and we pass all these villages where it's like, okay, surely we must be there. We've been driving for so long. How many more secret roads are we going to take? It's like, no, we'll take more secret roads. So, I mean, there were like 10 turns deep into the bush, and then finally we get to this village where there's a number of Christians, and a number of these people are not Christians. Um, so Dan did a lesson here on Matthew 7. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven. And uh, he was very frank that even someone teaching the Bible uh, may not be going to heaven because they're not actually doing the will of God. Turns out the preacher here is actively involved in adultery. Uh, and the church asked him questions about that after the lesson. And some other teachers were going to go back 
and continue to help this village uh, deal with that, that problem. Um, and then this is another village we went to. Uh, this group was uh, so encouraging. There were a lot of women. So women work in Africa much more than men. Uh, it's kind of backwards. They had a, a really serious civil war about 20 years ago. And I think one of the repercussions of that civil war is a lot of the women work and a lot of the men don't. Uh, not to say men don't ever work, but it's much more common for women to work. So there were more people here than are in the picture, but some of the women had to go to work. Uh, this is in the evening, by the way. So they had to go work in the evening to keep working the fields. And I think they came back from work. I think the idea was that they had come in from work just for the study. And then once the study ended, they went back to work uh, late into the evening. So there were a lot of people here for this study. We just sat outside and taught them from the book of Acts. Uh, Dan did a lesson on Acts chapter 8 with the Ethiopian eunuch, and he, he really emphasized Christianity is not a white man's religion. You know, that the Ethiopian was an African, therefore Africa received the gospel long before a white man ever received the gospel. So really the gospel is more African than it is American, for sure. Uh, it was a great lesson, and um, they asked, these women on the right especially, had so many thoughtful questions. They were so interested and so humble in learning about uh, all of these things. And, you know, the whole village really came to here. And again, not everybody pictured here is a Christian, but uh, many of them are. Um, and then on our last few days, there's some guys uh, from America that came to spend all of their time in Bo, investing in the Christians in Bo. That's, uh, these are all um, Illinois teachers, so they're in Illinois. Rick Lingen, uh, Andy, David Dieselkamp, and then uh, I think it's Andy's daughter, Jessica, I think it's Andy's daughter, um, all came to invest in the Christians, which is so, so helpful because they're able to then, uh, I think, contribute more because Dan and Sean and Sonia and Abby are already there, um, kind of laying a lot of groundwork. And these guys don't speak Creole, they speak English. So it just, it's very, very helpful. So in a sense, going where there's American preachers doesn't mean they're less effective because, well, there's already American preachers there. Uh, it's actually more effective that they're there um, and I think they can accomplish a lot more because of that. So that was very encouraging. Here we had a, a singing together, um, which is very, very encouraging. And then they had daily studies focusing on the prophets. Um, we would sit outside. This is uh, Dan and Sonia's compound, their, their house compound. All right. So that's just a brief overview of the work. Not every place we went. I didn't get pictures of every church that we went to, um, but we were uh, busy just with a lot of really good work, which was very encouraging. And I just want to give three brief lessons and reflections here on the trip. One, it's just, it's hard to get around this when you're there. To read and understand is such a tremendous gift and such a tremendous responsibility. You know how many people in Africa, what they would give to be able to easily read the Bible and understand it? You know, and again, a lot of these teachers even, they read, but it's like, what is that word? What does this mean? You know, what's that sentence mean? What is that saying? You know, so it's like they can read, but understanding is so hard and they understand how precious this is and so it's hard to come away from that and not realize the fact that I can read the fact that I can understand what I'm reading is such a tremendous responsibility and I know that people in our culture tend to not be illiterate but our culture is biblically illiterate okay and if we invest in reading the bible I think it can be easy to take for granted how much we can help people know the Bible because we are reading the Bible, right? And I think we struggle with something very similar. Well, when I read the Bible, I don't understand it. Or, you know, it's just not very rewarding. And I've got so many other things to do. They've got that same struggle in Africa. <laughs> and so in principle, their same struggle they need to have to discipline themselves to realize this is so important where I just need to be patient reading and investing in this. No matter what I may feel like I'm getting out of it, I just got to read it, right? Ah, to read the Bible. And to understand it is a tremendous gift. It is a tremendous responsibility. Uh, reading the Bible is enriching. And again, a struggle the teachers have, and I think the brethren have there, is it's easier to just get points. And I think we can fall into that, where when I read a commentary, I just get the point. Or I read that book about the Bible, I just get the point. <sighs> There's a unique struggle to reading the Bible unfiltered, and learning the discipline of getting points purely from the text and not just relying on the easy points other people make from it, right? So I just really want to encourage you in that. Just like they struggle in Africa, 
In principle, it's the same. I think we struggle with, give me the easy point. I don't want to struggle to read the Bible. It's so hard. Read the Bible. It's such a gift. It's such a responsibility. We need more Bible reading. And I think we live in such a competitive culture. And I'm not talking about physical things here, right? I'm not talking about the rich or the poorness of the culture. We need to be more thankful for where God has taken us spiritually rather than be comparative and competitive. Uh, the culture there is just not as much comparative and competitive. People are so much more simple-hearted and thankful for where they are. You know, whereas here, I think it's easy to think like, oh, that person's so much more mature. That person knows so much more than I do. And we discourage ourselves and make ourselves miserable because we're so comparative in our culture. And I think it's, it's subtle. I think it's hard to realize how hyper-competitive our culture is, how incredibly comparative our culture is. And I think that affects us spiritually. I cannot tell you how many times I have genuinely wanted to stop preaching here and in Alabama and in Minnesota because of comparing myself with other teachers and thinking, I'm not a good enough teacher. I'm hindering God's work. Who am I kidding? You know, I'm not being effective. I don't know how to do evangelism. I don't know how to help people through their problems. I don't know how to teach the Bible effectively. I'm getting in the way of people understanding. And you just make yourself miserable. And, you know, thank God God has helped me work through those things. But I understand. <laughs> you know, I've, I've thought that I'm a hindrance to the work in Savannah. I thought if, if only an older, wiser man were here instead of me, the work here could grow so much better than Bryant getting in the way of God's work here. And I, I real, I'm saying that realizing that's not a good way to think, right? I'm saying that's, that's wrong. But I think we all struggle with that. And so we just need to be much more thankful for the fact that God has given us every spiritual blessing in Christ. And we are important to God. Ah, just Satan wants us to be spiritually covetous. And again, just make ourselves miserable instead of being more simple-hearted and thankful for what we have, the growth God gives us, his patience with us. We have so much. And it's so easy to focus on how bad things are, what we don't have, or we, we should be so much better. We should know so much more. Wow. It's good to want to grow, but we just have to be super careful about the way that we're thinking about where we are spiritually, especially when we start comparing that to others. Thirdly, and I think this is so important, I think we struggle with fear a lot. Fear can be a tool for God to give strength and growth. We're going to struggle with fear. Dan and Sonia struggle with fear in Africa, okay? But fear can also be a tool for Satan to weaken and destroy. When Dan's daughter got malaria, he was afraid. Their local hospital is awful. <laughs> the people there hardly know what they're doing. They're not educated. Sometimes they reuse needles on people. I mean, it's just, it's a bad system, right? Malaria is one of the leading causes of child uh, death in Africa. And their daughter got really sick, really sick. She became lethargic and wasn't being responsive. They had to go to a hospital room shared with a bunch of other people. And it's just a bad situation. Dan was pacing back and forth, constantly worried about it. But you know what Dan was doing? And I thought this was such a good example. He was fighting his anxiety with the word of God and spiritual songs. And Dan wasn't just letting fear control his mind. He was combating that fear. What is God trying to teach me right now? What can I learn from this? And Dan talked with Eva about this struggle. I've never seen Dan cry, but Dan wept, saying his biggest concern is that his children inherit his anxiety. And so Dan works very hard, him and Sonia both, with combating their anxieties through the word of God. I want you to think about the impact that could have on Dan's children, seeing that when they are afraid, that they're handling that in a way where they're striving to overcome that fear. It's ironic, I think, that when we have so much more, we're so much more crippled by fear. And I think fear is like anger. We become afraid because of reasons we feel are justifiable. When I become angry, of course I feel justified in my anger. I'm angry about something. Someone's done something or some injustice has been done. God tells me to put away anger. <laughs> anger is an opportunity to be humbled. We're going to struggle with fear. I don't think the Bible gives us a magic tool just to zap our fears away. But I think God equips us to realize that when we are afraid, when we have anxiety, we need to be really careful. And we need to recognize that it is an opportunity to work through things in a way that can be faith-building. Or Satan can isolate me, destroy me, weaken me, 
He can make me a recluse. He can make me overcome by faithless thoughts where I'm focusing more on the problem rather than on God's strength and solutions. And another part of this too. So there's one, one angle of this. There's another angle to this. When Dan comes to America, there are some things that can be really discouraging for him being here. And one of those things that's most discouraging may surprise you. It's when people say things like this. You're made of different stuff, man. You're doing something I could never do. <laughs> it sounds encouraging. For Dan, that is extremely discouraging. For one, it makes him struggle with pride. And he doesn't want to have any pride about what he's doing. And for two, from Dan's perspective, <laughs> he's doing what other people can do. Does everybody need to move to Africa? No. But the principle that we should be familiar with the idea of doing what is hard and being willing to sacrifice my own sense of comfort for the, for the sake of the kingdom. That should be a familiar thing. And so Dan really tries to encourage people to not see moving overseas to a place like Africa, some unthinkable heroic thing, but just that should seem like a thing that a Christian can just do as an extension of biblical principles. Again, does that mean we move to Africa? Probably not. But just this idea that it's not unthinkable to do something sacrificial for the sake of the kingdom. And so even I, in thinking about this, talking about this with Dan, what can we do? We can certainly encourage our children one day to be aware of the need in other places, around the world even, and maybe the need to move there and to train up children to realize that should be a real possibility within their minds to be willing to do something like that. When I was in Kono especially, it was overwhelming how incredible the need was there. It was impossible to not be completely heartbroken. How many Christians there are in that community and how few people actually know the Bible to teach them and how it's like sheep without a shepherd in a way where it's people craving the Bible and who's there to really take on that need? Doing hard things. Those little moments of anxiety and fear, again, we're going to struggle with fear. We're going to struggle with anxiety. We aren't defeated because we have anxiety. We aren't defeated because we have fear. We're defeated when we let that dominate us without realizing it is an opportunity to fight through that with the tools that God gives us. In my personal fears, it will cripple me in bigger ways. If I let that little fear dominate me, then there will certainly be, be bigger sacrifices I will never make and will never be on my radar to make those sacrifices. And then someone like Dan and Sonia who really are completely ordinary people. In three weeks, it became very apparent. These are very normal people. Normal people can do difficult things if they are really trying to abide in real biblical principles. Jesus did not train his disciples to kick up their feet and enjoy life, right? It's okay to enjoy life. It's okay to do nice things. But Jesus trained his disciples to do hard things, to go to hard places, to make big sacrifices. Folks, that's got to characterize us too in Savannah. Even if that doesn't mean going to Africa, even if that just means in some small, unnoticeable way, we're just willing to do the hard thing in front of us and train ourselves to think that way.